This episode of Dirty Linen is proudly supported by Pepe Sayer Australian Cultured Butter, batch churned from single origin cream. In Australia, we're so creative and we explore and that's going to be, that's going to make our chefs better because they're not limited to one style of cooking or one flavor profile. We're literally taking, taking inspiration from all the cultures that we have in Australia and making it our own. And, I would love to see more Australian chefs go to these competitions and absolutely kill it and show them what Australia is all about. Some people have had a period through the pandemic which has really been a transformation. It set them on a new path. It certainly has forced a lot of people to ask questions about their direction, wonder whether they're doing the right thing, whether they want to try something different, really restructure their lives. Uh, I'm super excited to bring into this conversation John Rivera. He is a chef. Uh, he's worked a lot in fine dining, but he's uh, come into 2021 focusing on sorbets. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat to you. Um, so do you want to give us a little bit of an intro to you? What's the What's the John story? Yeah, um, so I guess much like any other any other young cook I, I came out of the gates of high school and uh you know started my cooking um and you know with when i started cooking i had the aspirations of you know being the best or being the best version of myself and it's yeah it's taken me to a lot of great places and a lot of great places to work at i started off at rockpool bar and grill here in melbourne um about 10 years ago now and I started off in the front of house um, just to get my way through through um, through TAFE and then eventually moved into the kitchen um, and then I focused on pastry so that's where Min and I my business partner and friend with Kariton actually met um, we were the only two two boys in the class and all the girls had already partnered up and um, you know it was almost like fate that um, we got put together uh, it's funny because the first time we met, we all we both thought we were both international students, so we didn't talk for the <laughs> for the for the first I don't know twenty minutes of the class, um, and then from there we just bonded, I guess, because of our passion um, and our and our drive. Um, so I spent a few years at Rockpool Bar and Grill, and um, I made I made the big move over to Sydney, and I worked at um, Rockpool 1989, the original, um, for a couple of years under Phil, with, with Phil Wood and under Phil Wood, because um, I really started to get that itch for fine dining. Um, and that's where, it's, that's where it started for me. For, since then, I've just been doing fine dining. I've, I came back here to Melbourne and um, did my stages at Attica and Bray, um, which I feel like every Melbourne chef has done uh, at, that, at that period of time, uh, about six years ago. Um, and then started off at Lume, uh, when Sean, uh, opened that up back in 16, I believe, and then, um, moved on to Amaru, um, where I, where I learned a lot as well from Clinton and then back at Lume to actually take over it for, uh, over in 2019, just before COVID. And yeah, working in fine dining has been great. It's taught me so much, taught me, uh, discipline, great skill, um, and you know, it's taken me to to far places. With especially, it helped me a lot with San Pellegrino Young Chef of the Year. Uh, we ended up going to Milan and placing fifth in the world, which 
which I, I was really, really surprised about, but really stoked with. Um, and yeah, I guess um, in my last year at Lume, I just started to, I just started to have that feeling that, you know, maybe, maybe fine dining wasn't for me. I wasn't happy anymore. Uh, I felt like um, I was in a box and I wanted to, to get out. Um, and I felt like having the world stopping for COVID and me and forcing me to just slow down and take the blinders off allowed me to, to open my eyes and see other possibilities. It's, I mean, it's such a... It's such a striking story because I think when you're working at such a high level in fine dining and all those restaurants that you mentioned, you know, are incredible, like amazing training grounds and, yeah, someone like somewhere like Amaru with Clinton McIver and Lume with Sean Quaid and, and of course, Attica and Bray. I mean, there's really incredible work being done in those restaurants and there's this sense that, you know, the project is worthwhile that you're sort of on the outer edges of what's possible with with cuisine with feeding people it's very creative um but of course a lot of pressure goes with that and i suppose also this feeling that you're part of um you know there's this incredible heritage with fine dining but it also perhaps can feel a bit restrictive and that you can't bring all of yourself into it i mean what was it about about it that started to I guess jar with how you were feeling as a person. Look, I mean, if if I have to be, com- if I'm being completely raw and, and honest, I think you know, to an extent, fine dining and and um, the world of 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 lists and awards and all that can certainly blind you, and um, to an extent where you, you you almost kind of cook for your own ego, which is which is. It's thrown around a lot in the cooking world, especially with the old school kind of chefs. Um, you know, I think after San Pellegrino, I left there with a bit of a chip on my shoulder and taking over from, from Sean, I felt like I had to to step up to the plate of sorts. Um, and I always, and then after that, I just kind of felt like I was always in competition with, with something else that I'm not. Um, and I think that's the hardest, the hardest part is letting go of those like of those expectations that of that the world has forced upon you to feel about yourself if that makes sense um and just focus back on on why you really do it you know you you make your guests happy you make um your, your customers happy in our sense and in turn it makes you happy and you know, I'm I'm happy. I'm, I'm not. I'm not afraid to say that one of the catalysts was um, was not getting my hat at Lume because that that was kind of like the what what everyone was aiming for. Like I, I would always say uh, at Lume, I wasn't aiming for a hat or anything like that. Um, but deep down inside, you have these aspirations of of being there with um, you know with with the greats. And it was it was certainly such a jarring moment when I didn't get it, and I thought it was a mistake. We all thought it was a mistake, and um, I still remember I was in Indonesia doing an event at that time, and I was I felt like I was on top of the world. I was, you know, I was rubbing shoulders with Julian Royer in Indonesia, Odette, um, and you know, I felt like I was doing something right because I was getting recognised. And then that news came where like, no, nah, we didn't get, we didn't even get a hat. Um, that, that, that was hard for me. And I remember like that night I dreamt about like 
I was still in Indonesia. I dreamt about me being in Melbourne and having to face the music. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to, how am I going to like face up to the disappointment? Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess like from that point on, I, I thought to myself, is that really what I'm just chasing with my career? Like there's more to life than just getting a score on a piece of paper, you know, like it's great to be, to be, um, to have a great restaurant and get a great review. But at the end of the day, are you happy? And, um, and if not, then I guess that translates to what you're producing. Wow. It's so full on. And, you know, as someone who's written for the good food guide for ages, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's really striking to hear how, that news of, you know, the score and the hat strikes someone such as yourself. And I didn't realise, like, I've actually, I've got, I've just reached for the guide as you've been talking because I've got them all filed up on my shelf. And, yeah, so I can see that you got 14 and a half out of 20, whereas you needed to get a 15 to get a hat. I mean, that's pretty gutting. Um, I have to say I didn't write the review. So I'm, yeah. it's oh, not that's on, fine. No, it's no hard feelings. It's, you yeah, know. sure. But it's, it's not on me. But, um, but uh, I mean, did you feel that it, the review was fair, that the score was fair? I mean, you say you think you thought it was a mistake. Like, do you reckon it was wrong? Um, um, no, look, I, the thing is, you know, you kind of roll the dice with these things. It's, you can have a good night, you can have a bad night. Um, I, I still remember the night that, um, that Jemima and Michael Harden walked in. I, I don't want to drop any names um, and, you know, nothing against what they've written or anything like that. I, but I still remember that night. That they that they walked in, and um, it was obviously for a re- or for a review, and it just felt like everything collapsed that night. You know, we were oh. we were we were front of house short. We were a chef short, and of course, um, you get uh, you get reviewed again, and you get reviewed again, and you always get reviewers that you don't know, or like you know, um, phantom reviewers. Um, look, it. It is what it is. Um, I think I mentioned when we were speaking um, the other night when we met, at, when we had dinner, that I felt like I took that role on too early, uh, too young, or too immature um, to realise these things. And maybe yeah, I had I had the blinders of fine dining and my own ego uh, um, blinding me. But I look back now and I think I, I like. Looking back now, when I when I saw fourteen and a half, I look at I'm like I've I've I failed. I failed because I I didn't get that half, and for so long I was like, what could have that half had been? Was it my cooking? Was it the food that we put out? Was it was it the front of house? Was it you know all these things that could have could have gone wrong? I I muddled over, and then now I look back I'm like. Geez, fourteen and a half—that's not too bad, eh? On the on a first try, <laughs> at at uh, twenty-five years old, like, sweet. Um, so yeah, like, it's it's funny. It 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 all comes to perspective now, I guess. Like how you look at it. To me now, I'm like fourteen and a half. Great, I'm proud of that. I'm happy with that. Um, but, and I'm also happy for that coming out because I feel like I understand what I want to cook and how I want to cook now, and just what I want to do with 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 my cooking yeah wow it's um so do you so what was the process then of you deciding that that wasn't the direction for you like what 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 did you do like did you decide to leave or was it a did COVID come in the way what happened yeah look I um 
I guess my stubbornness and my um, yeah, my, my wife will say my stubbornness got in the way, and I knew I was happy with with um, with what I was happening at Lume and what I was doing there, and um, and I thought I thought I could take on the world because um, I ca- I just come off the back of of San Pellegrino and you know working ten years in fine dining. I thought I had all the answers, uh, so it it just all worked out that I was getting married in twenty twenty. And I was also in talks of doing my own place in 2020. So I resigned at the end of 2019 to enjoy my wedding. Um, I was already going to take a month off anyway. So I thought, you know what, let's just, let's just call it, call it here and um, go on our separate ways. Um, And then, yeah, I guess not working every day, not, not being in that life every day, for the next month started that thought process inside of me. But at, at the same time, I always tell my wife, like it was so hard for me to let go of that certain plan because I knew I could still do it. And I kind of still felt like I had something to prove, even though like when I did my business plan, I was like, okay, it's gonna, it's gonna, I'm going to take a, a hit on, um, I, I want to take a pay cut for the next four or five years to make this break even. But I know it can work somehow and and then covid came along and then I just realized that why are we why are why are a lot of chefs willing to take take massive pay cuts and massive massive hits in in their in their livelihoods just to get their ego out there you know what I mean um and yeah that's kind of the process of of me leaving and over um over covid we didn't have any work I was uh, helping out at Sunda. Um, I was meant to be helping out at Sunda while they were opening Aru, and obviously that got pushed back because of COVID. But working two days a week, Min and I were kind of like, "What can we do? What can we, what what can we come up with just to kind of see see through the lockdown and use our creativity?" And that's where where Cariton came along. Um, something that's really fun really uh, approachable and that we can bring it to to people's houses and kind of bring them joy over that time of uncertainty uncertainty on covid yeah so caraton is is sorbets really amazing sorbets and you mentioned we were at dinner together the other night so that was a thai new year songkran shared dinner it was really fun and delicious and at the end of it you brought out some uh, roasted sweet potato sorbet for us to try and it was so delicious. So yeah, tell us more about these um, sorbets. Yeah, so Cariton um, Sorbet um, is inspired by uh, the dirty ice cream carts of the Philippines. So, um, you know, if, if you're in Manila or anywhere really in the Philippines, there's always an old man pushing a cart along with um, with uh, ice cream or sorbetes that um, he's made uh, and it, and it's it's dirt cheap, and that's why they call it dirty ice cream. So, one one scoop would be like ten cents equivalent, um, and it's so iconic. Um, and the most iconic bit about me was every time we'd go home to the Philippines, I would remember um, the man's bell ringing on the street, and all the kids and everybody would gather around him, and you just see all the smiles and the faces. Um, so that's kind of one of the inspirations we took towards starting it um starting it during a time that was so just so just so dark for a lot of people 
Um, and everybody loves ice cream. So, you know what, we said, we've got the time, we've got the expertise, we've got the equipment graciously um, lent to us by, by, um, by friends. So, yeah, we went about it. Um, we started off with, with a few classic flavors uh, of Philippines, like purple yam, uh, coconut and pandan, cheese, banana spring roll and calamansi and gin. And, um, you know, we honestly thought we were going to be doing 100 or so tubs a week, um, but then it took off. Um, no, we're really grateful for that. Uh, so now we're, we're transitioning from, from a COVID business to being a, a multifaceted uh, retail business and something that we can see uh, growing and helping us do more of, more of the venues that we wanted to before, um, like a bar and a restaurant and whatnot. Um, and yeah, just really, really enjoying life and the other, the other side of things like my, my wife's expecting. So, um, we were saying that it would have been hard for me to be working the, the usual chef hours, uh, whilst we're expecting our first child. So everything's been a bit of a blessing mm. um, that I'm really grateful for. Well, I mean, it's such a, yeah, it's such a direction change. I mean, and obviously you bring, you know, your fine dining skills and sensibilities to to the ice creams. I mean, they're, you know, exquisite and, you know, there's such a high, such a high standard, but it is so different from what you were doing before. And even for you to say, you know, as it would be, it would be hard to do those chef hours while we're, um, you know, expecting a baby. I mean, it's, you know, definitely the culture that you've trained in, the, it would just be, yeah, wife's over there having a baby. I'm here working 15 hours a day. So you've really, you know, you've really drawn a line and said, well, this, this is, this culture is not for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I still remember watching, um, the old boiling point, uh, uh, series with Gordon Ramsay and he was in the middle of service while his wife was giving birth. And my wife was just like, if you ever do that to me, you'll never see me. <laughs> you'll never see me again. <laughs> um, but it's, it's true, you know, like it, I kind of, I'm very family orientated, uh, and I'm very close with my family. I've always wanted a family and whatnot. Um, and I guess it came to a point where like, what kind of lifestyle do I want? Um, do I, do I really want to be always missing out on the birthdays and the great occasions? And do I want to miss out on my, on my kids growing up? Do I want to be there? I really want to be there for them, you know, for all those things, take them to, take them to basketball, take them to soccer, take them, take them to school. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, it, I was, I was told, um, by one of my chefs, um, at Rockpool in, in Melbourne when I first started that you have to liken this career to a professional athlete. You, know, you when you're young, you have less responsibilities. Um, you go hard, you, you, you do whatever hours you need, you grow and you, you build that skill set. But when you start to approach your your thirties, your, your late twenties, your your thirties, and your early thirties, you really need to start thinking about um, what you're going to do for yourself because you don't want to be slaving away over a stove um, into your forties, and you know you'd rather you'd rather build something that works for you. And I think Min and I are at this point now where we're we're happy with 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 the career that we've. Um, um, done in fine dining and restaurants, and now we really want to to f continue on as business owners. 
I told my wife I'd, I'd probably be at the restaurant, you know, every every couple of nights a week just to make myself feel like a chef still. Um, and my and my chefs will probably tell me to just go home or do the ordering <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, you know, we we now look at it like we need to be business owners. We need to make this a livelihood, and the beauty of that in turn is that we can now bring on the next generation or the, the younger kids, or the younger chefs that have that youth and exuberance to take on the hard yards. You know what I mean? And, and, and also be an example of guiding them in the right way of, of how it should be done now. Not like, I guess the, the crazy hours we used to do and, and all that. So, so yeah, it's, it's definitely been a big change. Uh, it's taken me a while to adapt. Um, but, it's it's for the it's for the better I think and that's that's a mindset that a lot of chefs young chefs coming from school need to need to take on you know you got these you got this prime ten to fifteen years of of working your ass off and building your skill set and then once you get that skill set what are you going to do for yourself are you gonna are you gonna run a restaurant are you gonna be a culinary director are you gonna own a business and yeah. Mm. And what about the the ego side of it? Like, do you feel like you've you've outthought that, outgrown it, like reframed it? Where does it all? Where does that sit? I think that is always a an evolving thing. You know, I think me a year ago is a lot different also to me four years ago, and me four years from now will be different. I guess of just the experiences that I'll have and the growth I will have personally and professionally. There's a lot of things that I still, I'm still, I still have yet to uncover and the business side of things and um, doing that stuff every day, doing the business plans and running the numbers. And it kind of, it kind of humbles you and makes you more wise. Um, I kind of realize now why a lot of the older chefs that I've worked with are so, are so chill about things when it comes to cooking and that. Um, Cause I feel like they've, they've just, they've seen it all. They've got the wisdom. And, um, I, I feel like my, my self-centered quote unquote ego has, has, well, I like to think so. It's this has dissipated. Um, and you know, I'm just, I just want to be a sponge now, you know, just, just take, just take things in, um, and, and gain knowledge and wisdom from that and hopefully become a better person and become a better, become a better business owner and, and all that. This episode of Dirty Linen is proudly supported by Pepe Sayer Australian Cultured Butter. Batch churned from single what origin cream. electricity bills and our, you know, trucks and everything else is our bulk butter and our butter sheets because that's where the volumes are. A small bakery would go through 200 kilos of butter uh, a week minimum. Uh, when you compare that to a, to a deli, uh, they're lucky if they sell six units of butter. A lot of our investments in, in the business itself is trying to perfect the butter sheets that, that you know, Sonoma uh, would use to make their croissants, for example, which we're very proud of, the fact that Sonoma use our butter sheets to make all their croissants. Absolutely fantastic. For more information, go to pepisaya.com.au. Tell me about how your Filipino heritage fits into all this, because I know that at Lume you had started to bring in some, yeah, some Filipino elements. Um, 
but I'm assuming that wouldn't have been possible throughout most of your fine dining career. Like, is was it also about wanting to have that that self expression in that sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, look, I'm look. So I I was born in the Philippines, and I only had three short years really living there um, before we migrated to New Zealand, and then we migrated here in '05, just in time for high school. So most of my growing up and my formative years were done overseas. Uh, the, the thing with the thing with Filipinos uh, going overseas, I guess, is that um, in the outside world, you're you're always taught to blend in or or assimilate with the communities, just so that it makes life a little bit easier for you. It's it's just an inherent Filipino trait, um, and so we only had a connection to our Filipino culture at home. Um, when our parents spoke to us in Tagalog or uh, with the, or through the food that we were eating. And it was the food that uh, had the biggest impact on me. It, it, it made me, it gave me a connection back to certain places and certain memories back home. Um, and I guess from a very young age, I've always been very patriotic of, of the Philippines. And um, that's, that's really guided me through um, through my own career, because when I started, there was there wasn't any representation of what Filipino food and culture is, and it's it's so diverse and so rich. You know, we're the we're the original melting pot of Asia with influences from Spanish, Chinese, um, Malay, Muslim, Hindu, um, and it's come together into something so unique as Filipino. But the thing is, Filipino is always just like we we spoke with um, with wanting to assimilate, kept all these things to themselves. Um, so I never had I never had growing up a role model when it came to Filipino food. Um, so that made me even more um, more compelled to to want to do it myself and explore myself explore that myself and. And yeah, it's it's great seeing um, after San Pellegrino, especially a lot more young Filipino chefs wanting to take on their cuisine and promote it to the world. You know, of course, you've got Chibog now. That's probably the first um, like modern Filipino restaurant here in Melbourne, and they're they're really flying the flag for us. So it's it's great to to feel that like. Um, that we're not taking the backseat anymore. We're not just living to blend in. We're actually saying like, hey, you know what? We are Filipinos. This is this is our food. This is our culture. It's equally as beautiful and we'd love to share that to you. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, I think it's such a transformation. I mean, it must have been so, well, what was it like to have this world at home which just wasn't represented outside it was it like you know you went went through the door at home and you were just yeah it was it was you're in a world that your schoolmates just didn't know about yeah i mean like all the when growing up in uh, in the western suburbs i had a lot of uh indian friends uh italian maltese friends and they were so proud they were so proud of of their food and their culture you know like um all um arguing about who had the best who has the best pizza in town or in the area? Who has the best pasta? And, and you know, my grandfather makes the best salami. You know, my grandfather makes the best salami. And I never had that because I'm, they're like, oh, I'm like, oh, I had adobo last night. And they're like, what's adobo? And I'm like, how do I even 
how do I even sell that to you? How do I even, um, how do I even um, promote that to you when for all my life I've been um, subconsciously taught to just keep it within us? And that was, that was a little bit hard because like Filipinos are proud people um, and they're proud of many things, you know, like the islands are great, Manny Pacquiao is a great boxer. But then back then, like the food wasn't wasn't promoted, um, so I felt like, almost felt like I didn't have that that own. Uh, it didn't have the same worth as these other cuisines and cultures, um, and that was definitely an insecurity, um, and it, it might be an insecurity for a lot of a lot of young Filipinos growing up too. Um, but that that made me really want to just be like, you know what, I'm going to bring it to the world and. That's one of the things that really drove me to do San Pellegrino. So in your San Pellegrino um, menus, did you do Filipino dishes or your interpretation? Yeah, so I kind of focused on um, my story of, of being an immigrant um, in, in, well, for San Pellegrino and I did uh, a sinigang dish. So sinigang is a hot and sour kind of, soup dish in the Philippines, very similar to Tom Yum. Um, a very similar uh, flavor profile. Um, and I used my story of, of being an immigrant in how our families had to adapt to what was available where we went to, to make our, to make our food. Um, because there's a lot of things that you can get in the Philippines that you can't get can't get in New Zealand, for example, or in Australia. Um, so I use a lot of native Australian ingredients. I used um, fish caught in the Tasman Sea. And I put that together to have the same flavor profile as, as a sinigang. Um, and it was really touching because one of the final judges in the global competition was actually Margarita Fores, which um, she's an amazing, amazing chef in the, in the Philippines. And I actually used her book as reference to the recipe. And she was one of the judges. Whoa. Did you know she was going to be one of the judges? Uh, I did. As soon as the judges were announced, ah, I clever, literally clever crapped, my, crapped my Dax. Oh, firstly. really? <laughs> and then I was like, no, this is, she's, if anybody, if anything, she's the one that's going to get this the most. She's going to understand it. And I still remember, I, I, I didn't, the judges were, were star-studded, you know, it was Brett, um, it was Brett Graham, um, Anna Ross, Virgilio Martinez, uh, Dominic Crenn, uh, um, absolutely star-studded. It's this type of people you'd, you'd stop on the street and take a picture with if you, if you were me. Um, but I had laser focus on Margarita eating my dish and the first bite she took, she looked at me and she smiled. <gasps> Oh, I got shivers. <laughs> anything could have happened. Like after that point, like anything could have happened. I could have placed dead last, but that was enough validation for me. And that was enough of like a, a pat on the back for me to be like, you've, you've done well. Because it's, it's so hard also to self. It's even harder, actually. It's the hardest thing to convince and sell modern Filipino to Filipinos. Because they are the biggest critic, they they will always be your biggest critics. 
Um, so that was that was a that was a very special moment for me. That's really amazing, and in, and coming fifth is an extraordinary achievement. I mean, Australians just do not win these competitions, so it was. I mean, that is really amazing. Yeah, it's um, it's it's funny because Jake Kelly was in the same competition, um, and oh, he he placed third, and he he had an amazing cook. Um, but he was he was doing thir- third or second. Um, um but he, anyway, he placed top three. And um, he was representing Singapore, of course. And we were having a joke. It was like, do you just want to swap? Because I'm technically representing Southeast Asia and you're doing an Australian dish. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the great part of San Pellegrino is, was that um, the judges were so open to seeing something different. Um, it wasn't your traditional cooking competition where you're, you're within these set boundaries of a certain cuisine or you have to cook a certain th- certain thing. So... Um, the interpretation was down to uh, the, the execution was down to the to the creativity of the chef and what they could bring, you know. And it was amazing seeing cuisines usually underrepresented. So um, South African and African cuisine was was um, represented there by um, by the uh, contestant from South Africa. And he placed he placed top seven as well. And his dish was amazing. It was techniques and ingredients I've never never ever seen before. Same with um, the Mexican chef who brought uh, traditional um, kind of Mexican practices to his dish, and yeah, it was it was awesome. And and you know, I think Australia is is just as great with our native ingredients. And what I love actually about being an Australian cook or cooking in Australia is that we don't have those those kind of old school um, cuisines or parameters that limit us. So saying like, oh, we only cook French food and we have to cook, we have to make a sauce this way, for example. Now in Australia, we're so um, creative and we explore and that's going to be, that's going to make our chefs better because they're not limited to one style of cooking or one flavor profile. We're literally taking, taking inspiration from all the cultures that we have in Australia and making it our own and yeah, I, I, I would love to see more Australian chefs um, go to these competitions and absolutely kill it and show them what Australia is all about. Mm. Well, it's really encouraging to hear you talk about you know how diverse and how open-minded the judges are with that. And it, yeah, you don't have to just be um, diving into the old Escoffier and, you know, coming out with a, with a silky sauce. Um, yeah, it's, it is really encouraging. Um, and I, and it is amazing to think about how you've just through that validation and it's that you've been able to really, yeah, forge ahead with expression, expressing your culture and being and being proud of it, and and yeah, just sharing it with the broader community. I think it's brilliant. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think it's such a it's such a good. It's, I mean, I know that with even without the pandemic, you probably would have had this direction change. But what do you think? You know, are the are the positives to come out of this period for for the hospitality industry? Um. I think firstly, it's obviously it was um, terrible financially and people's livelihoods were on the line. But I feel like, honestly, we work so hard in hospo and sometimes the weeks just turn into a day. You know, it feels like you're never getting a break. So 
personally, I I love I love the first the the break of it, just having just being forced to stay at home, not go to work, and not do anything. And uh, call me lazy or call me whatever, but <laughs> after ten years of being on my feet most of my life, just laying on my couch for the first two weeks and not having a care in the world really was great. So I really hope um, that people in HOSPO got uh, feel a bit more refreshed after that. Um, but I think what really great that came out of hospitality and what was great to see was the resilience and creativity of, of a lot of people, um, especially those who, um, like I take, I take Nabil Ansari, for example, right? Like he really made most of that lockdown. He didn't just sit on, on his ass and be like, well, it is what it is. Uh, him and a lot of people, um, you know, had a, something special to offer or something, um, something dear to their heart. Um, like the Empires uh, or like Babka Boy, um, and they brought it to the to 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 Melbourne and to Sydney and to wherever it is. Um, and you know, it's we Min and I always say is that everything, all the doors were shut over COVID. Um, and sometimes you don't have to knock. You shouldn't knock on a door. You just have to go and tear a wall down and build your own door. And all these people built their own doors to get. Um, past, past such a such a shitty time, and yeah, you know that that resilience it really inspires. Um, because, like, if if we all just sat on our ass, we'd have just been like, oh, yep, yeah, cool, let's, let's let's all let this pass. But seeing Nabil work hard and um, you know, Bob Kaboy succeed and the Imparters were going great and all the other all the other businesses, I I, I, ha- I can't recall and and all that, it really pushed us and I hope it inspired a lot of people as well as much as we've inspired people to to do what they want to do. Um, well, yeah, I think it definitely... So Nabil Ansari is a chef at, at Sunda who started cooking Indian food, um, riffing on his background and, uh, yeah, food that was delivered around the place and also cooked on... cooked Yes, yeah, cooked, at, cooked at Sunda and the pop-up. Um but yeah, I think so many of these lockdown hustles not only inspired other people in the industry and, you know, gave people an income stream and something to do, but they also really opened up new cuisines and ways of thinking about food for, for people like myself, like people sitting at home eating. Um, it was, it was really exciting. You know, I think I probably learned more about Indian regional food in lockdown than I had, you know, the previous year when I could go out and about and eat it. So, yeah, it was. It, there was there was a lot to be. There was people definitely made the most of that in in many ways, which is it's yeah exactly as you say, it's that creativity and resilience. And I guess one thing that I, I was really astounded with over lockdown was we always talk about Melbourne being a great food city and Melburnians loving great food, and they really put their money where their mouth is over lockdown, um, and they supported from home. Um, you know, with with Providor when I was working at Sunda and even like all these other lockdown hustles that you mentioned, um, Melbourne was really there to support support these restaurants and support the hospitality industry. Um, and that was really, really great to see. Mm. 
Yeah. So can people, how can people get your sorbets now? So we have, um, we have a website right now, um, www.caritonsorbetes.com. It's a little bit hard to spell, but if you check us out on social media, such as Instagram and Facebook, we'll have uh, links to our website where you can order our gelato and um, we'll still deliver it to your door. Um, so that's going to be ongoing until we can set up our site. Um, and finally then, you know, hopefully sooner we can have um, all our lovely customers and everybody who wants to try um, Filipino gelato to come to our store and you know bring their families, bring their friends and have a great time. Um, but also uh, you can also grab a scoop of our ice cream at Chibog in West Footscray. So an amazing, amazing um, Filipino uh, little gastropub uh, slash bar and they do amazing food and we're, we're so happy to partner with them uh, for their desserts and serving our gelato. And also just keep a lookout. We might have a few other restaurants where we'll be able to to partner up with and um, and you can get a scoop of our gelato. So yeah, please um, check us out and yeah. Great. John, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and hear about your like fascinating and, and fabulous pathway through the pandemic. I really wish you all the best with the baby on the way and the business and yeah, continuing to learn and grow and eat and create delicious things. Thank you so much for being part of Dirty Linen. Thank you for having me, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.